What would you put in your backpack if you had a new coaching engagement but could only take a limited number of items? Each week, the Coach's Backpack looks at the multifaceted world of coaching and asks a new guest to tell us what they would take with them and why. Hi, I'm David Lowe, and this week we're taking a peek inside the backpack of Ruth McCarthy. Welcome, Ruth. Hi, David. Great to be here. Thank you for coming. So before we get into the scenario, how would you describe what you do in under 20 words? Oh, there's a challenge. I teach people how to listen without interrupting. And then we discover just how much that transforms our ability to think. I was so tempted to interrupt you for comedic effect there, but I held on. Cool. Well Thank you. Thank you. OK, well, look, here's the scenario. You've been asked to coach a new client, but are limited to what you can take with you. So you've got your essentials, you've got your clothes, your toothbrush and that kind of thing. And in addition to those, you can take one book, one tool, technique, concept, method or approach, one other item of your choice and one person. And they can be from the past or the present to accompany you. So, Ruth, what would you take with you and why? Hmm. Well, I'm going to cheat a tiny bit here because the book I really want to take with me is in production in my head. It's not actually realised yet. And it's the result, I suppose, of many years now of chairing and facilitating and being with groups particularly who aren't thinking well. And noticing what it is that's getting in the way and being evangelistic almost about creating a much better experience because I think people just die inside in bad meetings and the waste of human capital is tragic. So I got this working title, it's called Rock Your Meetings and it's going to be a book about sharing time, brilliant questions, bringing in information when needed because so often there's you know that just doesn't happen basically a really practical look and of course so much of that derives from the work I do through Nancy Klein's very powerful time to think and the way of being that is the thinking environment so the book I really will bring because <laughs> I can't obviously get this one out of my head quickly enough the book I really will bring to my frazzled hectic client is the most recent book that Nancy's written, which is called The Promise That Changes Everything, I Won't Interrupt You, and is a very rich and complete sort of update from More Time to Think, which of course was the sequel to Time to Think. So it's, it's not exactly a trilogy, but we're starting from a new place with this. And this bold statement, The Promise That Changes Everything, I think is magic. And can you give us a brief summary without giving away the punchline of the of the book well, the punchline I suppose in a way is there in the title but I think the really different thing is that Nancy has approached big subjects like polarization and the toxic effect of over digitalization I mean we all know about these things but seeing it through this prism of what happens for the brain that is still and at ease as opposed to what happened to the brain that is buffeted by whether it's polarized opinion or you know, digital distraction is really interesting and I think we'll you know we'll, we'll take this to another level. So if you had to pick one nugget from the book to share what would it be? Well I think that recognizing for the first time in print certainly something that's been what we've been working with for a couple of years now which is the idea that 
and it's such a natural idea, you sort of know immediately it's true, that when we think, we think in waves and pauses and in many multiple waves inside one wave. And that being with a thinker in order to support whatever it is they need next at that pausing point is is critically important and then everything we found out over the last 20 or 30 years of this sort of experiential work comes into play there but in a different way because people who've read the other books will have become very familiar with the concept of parts and a slightly linear suggestion of part one two three two three four five six and while that was a very useful model and metaphor at the time and the best in the way that we had i love knowing that there's something so energetic about the exploration that goes on with the thinking environment all the time, that when something really new and valuable turns up, even if it sort of slightly contradicts or shifts what was being done before, it's embraced and it's brought into play. It's not sort of left to one side because actually it's easier to stay where we are, which I'm afraid could be said probably of quite a lot of models that are in use in many different sectors and parts of our world of work. So I love that. And I think it's, I think it was deeply courageous to go there and it's all in the new book. So if people are interested, they can find out there. Thank you very much, Ruth. Okay. So Ruth, where are we going next? Well, I think let's look at this question of method or approach or concept. Yeah, all those words. And what I really think about this is that you could be described in any of those ways. And people particularly talk about the time to think methodology, but I don't because I really do feel that this is a way of being with people that helps them to think really deeply as themselves and for the, for themselves and that it's about behaviors and it's about the principles that really uphold and inform those behaviors so for example i think i sort of think of attention and generative attention as the mothership of this and that a lot of the rest is kind of folded inside because if you give really generative attention ideally contracted for but sometimes it can just happen anyway and what I, what I mean by that is a level of attention that absolutely guarantees no interruption. So that does have to be said, I will not interrupt you. And when you're ready, you tell me you want another question. That's kind of radical. <laughs> I think there's quite a lot about this is radical at times actually. So then generative attention informed by that promise means that the brain of the person who's thinking is actually behaving differently to how it would normally behave when expecting interruption because the world we live in is so highly interrupted i mean we talked about digital digital interruption but actually i think we are encouraged to add value in all our interactions by coming in and I think that begins really early. I think in, it's in families, it's in schools, it's in all places of education. It's in, you know, hands up who's first, it's there. And it triggers that competitive instinct that we also have. And, you know, I, I'm beginning to think that deep inside every conversation is a, a will to win. <laughs> and winning means getting the person who you're listening to and being with to exchange their ideas for yours, because that's what we're doing when we're saying, haven't you thought about this? What about that? They might have ideas of their own, but we don't know. And the risk is that by coming in, we demolish that 
nascent idea before it's even emerged. And we ought to be doing risk assessments around that. And we're not, we're just doing it. So that's what's truly different here. The promise not to interrupt means that the mind engaging with the thinking goes into a new place. I think Kahneman would call it system two thinking you know, the deeper place, which is creative and much more difficult. And where we need every possible encouragement for our brain cells to fire and wire. And as I understand it, the limbic system goes into neutral in the presence of this level of attention, which means that the neurons fire and wire much more effectively because the other stuff, the interruption, and particularly brusque interruption, triggers cortisol and adrenaline because the limbic system is terribly trigger happy and it'll do that and then we think we're being attacked so our arguments and thinking start to go into loops because there's nothing fresh coming in so I love the idea that each of us has this capacity to be a generative listener rather than an interruptive listener and that doing that embodies ease because it frees us up from all that internal urgency run coming in and it frees us up from competition which means it's the truest kind of encouragement and it brings in a kind of implicit appreciation of the power of the thinker appreciation is another principle here but i love the way it can just be embodied and you know, the place that I am as a listener is important as well. It needs to reflect back to the thinker that their thinking matters. So I've discovered to be a much stiller listener than I used to be. I mean, I will say I am a recovering interrupter. I love to come in. <laughs> but this way of being is a more satisfying way to live my life. So that's where I am with it right now. So a couple of questions on that. Um, an interesting point there you acted about contracting early on, mm. because... Obviously, listening to people in everyday life, me listening to my kids, my wife, my friends has an impact and a benefit on the conversation. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, for example, a coaching situation where we're saying this is my role and this is your role. And my role is not to interrupt. Yeah. And investigating how they might feel about that and mm. and naming it as being different and and, you know, we're so used to the interruption that not being interrupted can feel like dropping into a hole and you think, oh, help me here, come in with something. And maybe that's better in that moment, briefly. But I think we need to learn to trust the power of our own thinking. And we need to talk about that up front. When we first introduce it, a lot of people do have that, but this will be strange. You know, it's weird, it's weird. Well, and that's because you haven't contracted or create the design oh. the alliance as some people call it and so it does need that that clarification mm, absolutely and i i think it's a good analogy is a little bit like you know if you if you play tennis or golf or or even if you're a singer you know and you're used to using your body and your grip and your voice in a particular way then being encouraged to do it differently is always going to feel a little awkward and uncomfortable to begin with and you know that the result is actually going to be very much better once you master this thing so i think getting you know moving from unease to ease and we talk about ease a lot is where the thinking will then take off one further question on this then is when you are working with people so the recipients of this thinking time how many of them really struggle with it because it's so new to them mm. 10 is a nice round number, isn't it? If I was introducing this to 10 people and they were going to pair up into five pairs and each practice this way for the first time ever, I would expect two of them 
at least to be visibly uneasy and to to come back with some question about what what that feels like a very long time and you know what if I can't think of anything to think and and so on and and I think that it's really important to acknowledge that diversity includes all kinds of neurodiversities as we know and that means different ways of being with your thinking that's another one and therefore this accommodates all of that, providing the listener in each case isn't going to do anything to, you know, to come in with the thinker. Instead, to know that it's in the silence that for some people their best thinking will emerge, in the silence and the presence of this listener that their best thinking. So they don't need to speak. The thinking is happening. And for an extroverted thinker, that's really hard to understand or to be with. So I do think this belongs very much on the spectrum of from deepest introvert to most extrovert. And of course, most of us move up and down. We're mostly ambiverts, in fact. But for the very extroverted and the very introverted, there are, by definition, more, more difficulties with this. So we just talk about it. And then in the reflection afterwards, always say, how was it? And what did you notice and enjoy? And what was difficult? And everybody can say. And even by that point, people are usually laughing a bit and, you know, getting to see the differences. We should probably move on because otherwise we're not going to get to hear your other answers. So I believe you still have your object and the person to, to tell us about. Well... Once again, you see, I'm terribly torn between two people, so I'm going to say it really quickly, and then <laughs> you can decide whether it's allowed. One of them is dead, and one of them isn't, uh, thank goodness. Um, but I read last year Hans Rosling's book, Factfulness, which was just an absolute mind-blowing uh, book to read. He was a, a Swedish epidemiologist and, um, oh my goodness, man of many parts, really. And the book, through the book, which in itself is essential reading, comes this voice that is so warm and knowledgeable and calm and in, insatiably in pursuit of what could be even more true, that... I feel he would be the perfect companion to the to this way of being, because it's kind of, it feels absolutely aligned. And then the other person, and this why it's so difficult. We need to be able to chart the future in different ways than we're doing now. We need resilience and we need we need extraordinary communication and and pivoting and swiftness in our thinking. And Margaret Heffernan's book, Uncharted, which built on her much earlier book, Willful Blindness, does that. I mean, it, it doesn't do it, but it shows us where the alleyways are all blind and, and where we need to be. And it does it with optimism. In fact, both of these people, Rossing calls himself a possibilist. I love that idea. I think both of these people embody possibilism, which is why I take, I have to take both of them with me. <laughs> I don't think we've done one episode of this podcast where someone hasn't stretched the rules. So uh, I'm, we're, we're going to allow it, of course. Okay, Ruth. And finally, your object. Well... I have been very frustrated online by not being able to bring with me, because I haven't worked out a way of doing it, a beautiful collection of creative cards that I've got, mainly just beautiful pictures uh, without words, but some also with text, which I use sometimes just to stimulate thinking in very different ways To I'm sure lots of people will know about these. I was introduced to them by um, 
the amazing Alison Hodge some years back, uh, who uses them in coaching supervision. And it was a revelation, you know, what, pick up a card, any card, what does this card tell you about the situation? But more than that, you can play with them. And, and I think that's the thing I would bring, that they would bring would be some playfulness and, and color and yeah, just something completely fresh and different. I'd love to bring my creative cards, please. And do you have a pack handy? Yes, I do. I've got them all here. I mean, sitting here, dusting. I was going to ask you to look through one of them and pick out an image that sums up how you're feeling right now in this podcast. Well, that's what I often do. I say to people, you know, pick something that's, you know, telling you something about this work or the thinking environment or how you're feeling or... I like this one, actually. I think that was outside the... Guggenheim in Bilbao when it opened and it's the most glorious huge sweet looking dog but all made of flowers and all the different colors and I think it's it's how I feel because I'm feeling quite upbeat and joyful and at ease and the colors represent you know all sorts of possibilities and differences and yeah that's I just love how it can trigger all that we've had wonderful conversations around these cards beautiful well I know you have used them so I fulfilled a dream I feel, <laughs> in a did, tiny, yes. tiny way. So Ruth, we have your backpack packed. Sometimes we don't always pack everything in the backpack ourselves. And so uh, Ruth, what would you want to make sure is not in your backpack? I'd be horrified to find urgency, actually. I think I really wouldn't want to find urgency in my backpack. And by urgency, you mean having to do things immediately and not take time? Absolutely. Everything being on the fly, rushed, all about do, not about be. It just would be absolute antipathy to me to find any amount of that, of urgency or rush in my hypothetical backpack. OK, one final question then hmm. is where do you hope you are or are not heading? Well, do you know, thinking about this, I thought... If I was working in hospitality at the moment, somebody told me there's 500,000 couples waiting to get married at the moment because obviously everything got cancelled through lockdown. I have enormous sympathy with hospitality, but I think I would be stretched beyond endurance by the demands of so many people at once, all looking for perfection, because of course they do. So I wish a shout out for the hospitality industry and good luck this summer, but it's not an industry I'd ever head into. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much, Ruth McCarthy, for being a guest on The Coach's Backpack. Um, if people would like to know more and get all get in touch with you, where should they go? They can visit my website, www.thinkitthrough.co.uk, or the Time to Think website and find me there on the faculty list or LinkedIn, where they'll find me at Ruth McCarthy or on Instagram, Think. Lots of places, and You're I everywhere. I really hope they will be lovely to be in touch. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much again. Thank you, David. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the Coach's Backpack. If you would like extra goodies such as free tools, offers, further info about our guests, and maybe even the odd peek inside their actual backpack, sign up to our mailing list at thecoachesbackpack.com. And don't forget to follow the podcast too. See you next time.